Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The story of Irish emigrants to the US in the 19th century is dominated by the image of starving emigrants arriving in New York or Boston. While this is central to the Irish-American story, it's not the full picture. Tens of thousands of Irish people would travel far into the West, establishing communities in places like California, Colorado, Idaho and Montana. Indeed, by the late 19th century, one of the most Irish cities in the United States was in fact Butte, Montana. It was just one of hundreds of thriving Irish communities across the American West. This podcast explores why the Irish ventured west. It's a story of gruelling work in vast mining operations and all too often racism and hostility towards the Irish when they arrived. And forgotten as this part of Irish history may be, it was in the west of the United States where aspects of Irish American identity as we know it today was forged. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire. Today's episode is the final show of 2023 and I have to say it was without doubt one of my favourite interviews of the year. My guest is Alan Noonan. Alan's book, Mining Irish Lives, Western Communities from 1849 to 1920 is fascinating. It not only explores a forgotten history of the Irish in the American West but it has so much more. It's a story of workers in conflict with ruthless mining companies, immigrants facing racism and distrust, and how against all the odds, a thriving Irish community emerged in the far west of America. I have links to Alan's book in the show notes. You can get a copy there. I know you'll find this episode really intriguing, and on Friday, I'm going to start a Patreon discussion to hear your thoughts on what you made of it. So if you are descended from people in the American West, or if you feel I left something out in this episode, or you want to talk about any aspect of today's show, you'll find that discussion on Friday at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. I have a link to that in the show notes below. Given that this is the last episode of 2023, I want to say thanks to everyone for tuning in throughout the year. It's certainly been a hectic 12 months on the show with the release of Aletha Legacy, A History of Ireland in 18 Murders. 
You can find this in all good bookshops and on Audible. Over the last few weeks, I've been making some plans for 2024. I'll give you a proper rundown of what's coming next year in January. But two big items so far is a series on the Troubles. And then later in 2024, a major series on the 1798 Rebellion. Lastly, before we begin, I just want to wish you and yours a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Sound on today's show is by Kate Dunley. As I said at the beginning of the show, I think it's fair to say that the American West is not somewhere we often associate with Irish emigrants in the 19th century. But I was immediately taken aback when Alan explained how some Western cities by the late 19th century would have seemed familiar to Irish people. He begins by describing a place called Butte in Montana that will feature prominently in this episode. In places like Butte, you have places named Corktown, Dublin Gulch. You have schools teaching the Irish language. So you have branches of the Land League out in the American West in these really remote mining towns with maybe only 100, 200 people. In larger places, you have churches, schools that are almost entirely people by Irish priests and Irish nuns, Irish teachers. You have people like Michael Davitt visiting over in Virginia City, Nevada. In Butte, you have obviously Eamon de Valera, Douglas Hyde visiting, speaking to massive crowds of Irish people. And Douglas Hyde is using the Irish language when he's addressing these massive Irish crowds over in Butte. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating sort of story to see in the American West, this place which is often sort of identified as very prototypical American cowboys and whatever. And all of a sudden, these vast Irish communities out there. Nearly all Irish emigrants landed in the major ports of the East Coast, places like New York or Boston. Next, our conversation turned to the reasons of why these people left the big cities of the East and ventured into the West. The one similarity between them is firstly, obviously, their Irish identity, and then their optimism about hoping to come West in search of better wages, and as well as that opportunity. And that opportunity then kind of came in the form of creating these Irish communities. In the West, mining in many ways embodied the opportunities many hoped they would find. The California gold rush saw thousands move West, hoping they might make their fortune. But there was also others seeking more modest openings in standard mining operations. Of course, at this point, there's the California gold rush miners, the placer miners who are, you know, exploring, panning for gold, you know, doing small diggings into the earth and kind of searching for what they can find, hoping for a big strike. And there's an awful lot of Irish that are involved in that movement, thousands. But then also you have the temporary miners who are starting to dig those shafts or maybe only work in mines for a little bit. And those are usually called 10-day miners. So they have some skills. They're working away as well. Some Irish emigrants with experience of working in mines back in Ireland could find well-paying jobs in the West. Also that other category of miner as well called the hard rock miners or the skilled miners. And a lot of people who are doing mining studies or history of mining in America kind of think that the Cornish miners who are kind of classically known as the, the very good miners in America were the only category of hard rock miners. But that's not true. An awful lot of Irish who would have had experience in either the Alhees mines of West Cork or the Bonmahan mines in Waterford would be arriving over to America with those skills. And so they could occupy that skilled position of shift boss or manager within those mines. Now, the actual numbers that we're talking about 
we're only able to really get accurate figures by the 1880s for the numbers of Irish that are mining and their children as well who are mining. We're talking about almost 9,000 in the American West and over 13,000 Irish and the children of the Irish born working in mines in the American West. That figure in itself does seem small, but these miners were only the tip of the Irish iceberg in the West. Alan explains how there were tens of thousands of other Irish emigrants who found work in other aspects of the mining operations. There are tens of thousands of other Irish workers who would be classed as labourers, who would also be working in the mines either as muckers or working as part of the sort of infrastructure of mining throughout this region. So it's a much more diverse cast than just one occupation. Sometimes we either think of them in this one singular category of, you know, being the fellas digging at the rock face, or sometimes we think of them in terms of the California Argonauts, the the placer miners, but they were in all sorts of different categories. While mining communities conjure up a male-dominated world, Alan explains how women were very much part of these communities as well. There were fewer women in the American West in general. The women in these communities are working in boarding houses. They're working as boarding house owners, domestic workers, wives, nuns, sex workers. There's no American community. I should say there's no Irish communities in the American West without women. Alan went on to detail some of the Irish women who emerged as prominent figures in the West. Nellie Cashman, who's a prospector and a highly regarded mining prospector. Cases like Mother Jones, who's a labour organiser. Those also exist. And then cases like the mine owner, Delia McCarthy, who's owned several mines, has the respect of her workers. She goes to the World Fair in Chicago and returns back, is well known in the business community where she's based. But part of the problem that I've, I've found is the difficulty in tracing sources for these people. And while it was difficult to get personal accounts from mining men and men who were working in these communities, for women, it was exceptionally rare. And so when we're talking about those people, it's I was really fortunate to be able to uncover some of those sources or some of those accounts, because those voices are almost silent. Not quite, but they're very, very rare. Now, of course, when it comes to mining as well, the people who are engaged in either mine ownership or placer exploratory mining when they're women, they can do that. But often for the hard rock mining, women wouldn't be allowed in the hard rock deeper mines, partly because of the superstition that it would be bad luck, and obviously partly because of discrimination against women in the workplace. Alan's book uses emigrant letters to provide an insight into the lives of the Irish in the American West. These provide really personal perspectives and bring history to life. He shared, too, that highlight how many Irish who arrived in the West had families either back in Ireland or in the eastern United States. These families, often held together by women, had to endure long waits to find out what happened to their loved ones. Alan first shared the story of Michael Maguire. He starts out in Philadelphia and he starts writing a few letters in San Francisco. He goes out into the interior of California doing his gold exploration. And then the letters stop and his family are in fear for several months. They don't know what happens. And finally, the following year, he reappears in Philadelphia unexpectedly with the family. He had sown gold in his boots, returning back home to Philadelphia. And they're there for a few months. 
before Michael and his family end up back over in California because Michael feels that there's more hope and optimism and opportunity over in California rather than on the East Coast. While the Maguire family were reunited, the letters of the Hayes family revealed the acrimony and bitterness many women must have felt at being essentially abandoned by their husbands. This letter really left an impression on me. There's a man called William Hayes, and on one of the letters, and this is sort of part of the the process of where you get this sort of richer, deeper context by reading the original letters with what's going on. But there's an emigrant letter that William Hayes sends back, and he says, the time isn't right yet to return back home. I can't come back home. I haven't gotten enough money. I have all of these business interests. I will get back very, very soon, but not right now. And scribbled on that letter on the top of it, it might be the start of a new letter to him, or it might be the start of a note, but it's a quotation which goes, you wrong your wife and child in this letter. And it goes on from there, sort of these notes. But you can sense the anger with some of those sort of immigrant letters. And of course, contact was so much more difficult, rarer, more expensive. In the West, life was often dangerous. Alan now explains what life in the mining operations could be like. This is probably summarised best by the fact that a commonly used drill was known as the Widowmaker. When we're talking about the guys going down into the more permanent mines, the larger mines, there's descriptions and songs where the miners are describing it as dark as a dungeon. And they're working on the, the, the face of the mine, the dangers of bad ventilation, the fears of cave-ins. And then as the 19th century kind of rolls along, we're talking about increased mechanization and the use of drills, which makes them even more dangerous. And the drills in the 1880s that they start using are nicknamed widowmakers because the dust that is kicked up by using this machinery in the bowels of the earth, you know, hundreds of feet down into the, into the earth on the rock, kicks up this dust and damages and scars their lungs. They call it silicosis. And of course, the problem then that they have is where are they going to go with ages and sickens the miners? There's descriptions of miners in Butte who look like they're in their 60s and 70s who are only in their 30s. And they have terrible breathing problems or if they get sick or if they die or if they're injured, where do they go to for health care or for help? While conditions were always difficult, the growth of major corporations in the mining industry who ruthlessly pursued the bottom line led to rising tensions with the miners themselves. Those mine companies, as they become increasingly corporate, increasingly centralized, begin targeting workers' wages, making mines increasingly dangerous. And like I said earlier on, with the advent of advanced industrial machinery, what is the effect that that has on workers' lives and their health? Alan shared the story of Patrick Hearn, an Irish shift boss who was killed in an accident. While mining companies often took insurance from the wages of their workers, in the case of Patrick's death, they refused to pay out to his widow. So, for example, in Idaho, you have the shift boss, Patrick Curran, Irishman. He dies with two others in a mining accident and the company are refusing to pay out to the widow on his death. And in the company records, we can see them writing to each other and their quotation about her is, she held out for more than we thought we should pay. And so what ends up happening is unions, fraternities, and also Catholic institutions like hospitals start acting as healthcare systems for the miners. And often when they're striking, 
they're actually advocating for the use of these other systems of care because they can't trust the mining companies who are in effect using either company stores or these company insurance policies to take more money out of the pockets of the workers. It's no surprise that in this ruthless world, workers began to organise into trade unions. One person who embodied this movement in the American West was the Cork woman, Mary Harris, better known as Mother Jones. Alan shares her story now. She's a figure that lives a rather tragic life. Her family die in, I believe it's a typhoid epidemic in Chicago. She loses her seamstress business then in the Great Chicago Fire. And for somebody who had gotten so many knocks in life, for her to turn around and dedicate herself to helping people and to promoting, you know, worker solidarity, it really showed a remarkable strength of character. And often she'd arrive into these mining towns and portray herself as a much older and more feeble woman than she was. They'd build a little stand for her and she'd stand in front of all of these different groups of miners, Italian, Irish, Welsh, and she'd start speaking in this very sort of gentle tone and say, you know, I'm just an elderly woman. I don't know how I'm able to do much, but even I know what's right and what's wrong. And then she'd, her voice would start to rise and she'd go, but all you strong men in front of you, you're unable to stand up for your women and your children and for yourselves. And her voice would kind of become louder and louder and the men would start crying, seeing her, her oration. So she was well able to handle herself and her image. I think her most famous experience was when she was over in Colorado in the Colorado labor war, a story that I would have loved to spend more time with, but has been detailed by several other accounts. And it's during the Colorado labor war where the miners are facing against Rockefeller and his mine company and his Pinkerton mine detectives. And the workers are all thrown out of their company housing. So they set up a tent city and the Pinkertons machine gun the tent city, killing over a dozen women and children. She's there as this very vocal opponent. She's led out several times out of Colorado under guard, both by the local police and then also by the detectives. And each time she returns to rally the workers in the face of this adversity. And that's where we get the song she'll be coming round the mountain. It's written about Mother Jones and her effort to continue to come back to the workers and rally them and support them. And uh, of course, her famous phrase was, pray for the dead, but fight like hell for the living. And that's sort of her encapsulation of her perception. She always railed against this early 20th century perception of the way a lady should act or ladylike. And instead she said, I want nothing to do with ladies. I want only firebrands. She was a very strong advocate for labor and was responsible in a major way for the early parts, the beginnings of labor rights, including the end of child labor in the mines. These efforts to forge class solidarity among the miners was often undermined by racial tensions between various communities. Alan expanded on this, beginning with a strike in Idaho that saw the Irish forge links with Cornish miners at the expense of others. In Arizona, for example, they ally with the Cornish against the Italians and support the mine company in an effort to secure their own position. In other places, they're much more sensitive to this sort of class-based struggle. In Leadville in Colorado, for example, we have conversations between the union organizers, the Irish union organizers, and others within the organization, various other ethnic groups you know, Swedish, Cornish, and the detectives, either Pinkerton or Thiel detectives, are listening in and they're writing back in their reports about the fractiousness between these various communities in their effort to create this larger working class solidarity. And the mine companies themselves know 
that there are these fractures and they start promoting them, trying to encourage them to ensure that that broader labor solidarity doesn't emerge. And so people like Mother Jones, who adopts a Welsh identity, is Cork born and still completely an advocate for worker solidarity, broader based worker solidarity finds her job cut out for her when she comes over to these American Western mining towns and is facing opposition and difficulty in facing down the mining companies. And then, like I said, those various fractures between the other groups. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Our discussion on these labour conflicts led into a much broader conversation on how the Irish as a community were treated. I found this absolutely fascinating. Alan begins by explaining how the Irish were treated on their arrival in the West. The Irish arrive over to the American West and they start forming their communities. There's a great degree of hostility against them. In the early decades, it's crystallized amongst vigilante organizations, which often target the Irish. And there are several violent encounters in the latter part of the decades, you're talking about mine companies organizing and arming groups to intimidate either the mine workers as they're striking or to intimidate the Irish American communities in various areas. Alan went on to expand on where this animosity towards the Irish emerged from. The perception of the Irish at the particular time was also this idea that they were subversive. And they were subversive because of their identity. They were subversive because of their religious affiliation, Catholicism. They were often seen by groups as being what you could consider the bad immigrants, right? Much in the same way that today people consider a good immigrant or bad immigrant. Well, back then in the mid-19th century, the Irish were definitely falling into the bad immigrant category, primarily again, like I said, because of those identities and affiliations that they simply refused to drop. And for them, this whole idea was tied into this sense of self-respect, really. In this environment, the Irish often saw their trade union struggles as a struggle for self-respect in a world where many despised and distrusted them. Alan explores this idea of how labour conflicts were bound up in this notion of broader self-respect by sharing this letter between two mine managers talking about an upcoming strike. There's a letter written by a mine manager in Montana, and he's communicating with another mine manager in northern Idaho in the Coeur d'Alene region. And the organization, the unions are almost entirely peopled by the Irish who have now brought the Italian immigrants in as allies within this broader union organization. 
But the, my manager writes to his friend in Idaho, and he says about the upcoming strike, he says, I sincerely hope that you will teach the Irish a lesson they will soon not forget. This idea of imposing, punishing the Irish for their allegiance and their efforts to create their own self-respect within this new these new communities that they've built. While we are getting a bit sidetracked, I found this conversation really interesting, just about the emergence of Irish-American identity in the West. Before we move on from this, I just want to share one other story Alan brought up that is a good example of how the Irish were distrusted. This actually dates from the late 1910s, when the US president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, made a pretty notorious speech in Arizona directed at the Irish One of the anecdotes that has always stuck with me is Woodrow Wilson, very late stage in the late 1910s, just after the First World War, when he's organizing his League of Nations. He's speaking to a group of miners in northern Arizona. And Woodrow Wilson was always this very strong advocate for this singular vision of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. That was what you had to be to be American. And speaking to this group in front of him, the Irish Americans are kind of jeering him. And he shouts out to the miners assembled in front of him and he says, any man carrying a hyphen in his pocket is carrying a dagger to stab into the vitals of the American Republic. And when you hear something like that, Woodrow Wilson knows exactly who he's talking to. He knows exactly what he means by it. And it's a very definite statement on the sorts of difficulties that these Irish communities have, not simply in existing out in this American West frontier and it's industrial but it's still a sort of frontier an emerging frontier but also sort of questions that they have with regards their their definition of what american industrial society should look like what america itself should look like irish immigrants pose these questions to america saying you know we can be loyal to the american identity but does american identity accommodate us The racism and distrust that defined the Irish-American experience in the West was not universal. In places like Butte, Montana, the Irish were very much in the ascendancy. Alan now explains how this came to pass. Butte emerges because of the influence of Marcus Daly. And Marcus Daly, a Cavan-born man, ends up over in the American West, was originally a sort of mining scout for a company and he arrives into Butte and sees the vast wealth of this hill, which is almost entirely copper, very, very rich copper ore. And he starts buying up properties. And then over time, as he starts his mining business, becomes known as a man who will hire the Irish at a very good wage. And it enables the creation of this very, very strong Irish community. The local priest in Butte was a guy called Father Brosnan. And he writes in one of his letters, he said, he did not care for any man but an Irishman, and he did not give a job to anyone else. Now, that's a little bit strong because Daly did hire other people. But the point is that if an Irishman arrived into Butte, he could get some job and never sweat mine or somewhere working in this Irish community. And it became very well known amongst the Irish that Butte was a place that they could come to and safely be able to get a job, a high-paying job. Butte is the most well-known Irish community in the West, but it wasn't the only one. There were other similar towns and cities with a similar history, now forgotten in the wider story of the Irish in the American West. One of the things in my book as well is, as important as Butte is later, there's also other cities that are very, very important. 
Leadville, Colorado in the 1880s and 1890s, and Virginia City, Nevada in the 1870s, which is as massively Irish as Butte is later. And the reason that Virginia City became particularly strongly Irish is because of the influence of the mine owners, Fair, Flood, Mackey and O'Brien. And they were all Irish or Irish-American. And they came together and ensured that the Irish were able to get jobs in these mining towns, that the discriminatory practices that occurred in other places, and we can see it in the hiring cards in places like Randsburg, California, where people are writing, oh, Irish on the hiring card as a sort of suspicious reference. Alan was careful to point out that even in places like Butte, the Irish faced racism. The history of a place called Maryville, a city to the north of Butte, illustrated how easily things could change. Even in Montana, where you're talking about this very strong Irish presence in a place like Butte and then in the smelter city of Anaconda, there's very strong hostility to them through the American Protective Association, which is a virulently anti-Catholic secret society, which becomes established in Marysville. And Marysville was actually started as a gold mine by a guy called Thomas Cruz, who is another cabin man like Marcus Daly. But he sells his stake in the gold mine. He retains one sixth share of it and becomes one of the wealthiest people in America in this time. And he names his mine from Lumen after the parish in Cavan that he was from. But later, the mine company would shift very much against the Irish in this town and would be known as a town that did not really welcome the Irish. And so this is not far away from Butte at all. And yet you still have those sort of adversarial forces that exist well into the 20th century against the, the Irish communities in these various parts of the American West. To finish our story, we talked about how the Irish in the West, even though they were so far from home, never really gave up on the idea of one day coming back to Ireland. Alan explains how hostility towards them played a role in shaping this. For an awful lot of them, their ties to Ireland, their ties to home represents a sort of longing to return to Ireland. And for most of them, they want to return to Ireland. It becomes this sort of tragic inability to return home and their real effort, not necessarily not to be American in the sense of they didn't want to be white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, partly because they couldn't be. They couldn't simply jettison their own identity anyway, but it was never their intent to be there permanently. They hold on to an identity that is tied to that idea to return. So in some sort of a way, they had no incentive to abandon their Irishness because they hoped to return to Ireland. It becomes a false hope in almost all cases and a myth that sort of sustains them. Those that do return to Ireland, they find both Ireland changed, transformed, they're disappointed by the experience, and they find themselves changed over the decades and then up to the present. That Irish-American community that continues and persists in parts of the American West is very much a lingering effect of that understanding of themselves as, in a way, exiles. I think Kirby Miller is correct with what he says in that sort of use of the term. And certainly, to this day, places like Butte and there's other towns around the American West, but Butte in particular holds very strongly onto this idea of itself as Irish place and people travel all over the state of Montana to go to Butte on St. Patrick's Day. They're very proud of their Irish heritage. How it manifests itself is all sorts of different ways, very much in the sort of way that I was talking about the book itself and the different spectrum of Irishness that Irish Americans sort of subscribe to. They can continue to speak Irish, write Irish poetry. They can continue Irish music. They can 
maintain affiliation with both the Catholic Church or not at all. They can continue affiliation and subscription to Irish nationalist causes. And that very much continues all the way through the generations and manifests again, like I said, in different ways. That whole Irish American identity is a much broader spectrum than I think people in Ireland realize and has all sorts of different levels and degrees. And again, I suppose manifestations is possibly the best word far beyond what we kind of caricaturize them as. And often in Ireland, we're very good at saying we're caricaturized as Irish people, but we unfortunately do it sometimes as well in the other direction. And so the complexities of the relationship and that identity, Irish America, I think hopefully my book goes sort of some way towards representing that and maybe understanding the complexities behind that in a setting that people might not necessarily realize has these burgeoning, blossoming Irish American communities. I found this conversation with Alan really fascinating. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'll be kicking off that discussion about the show on Patreon with some of my thoughts on Friday. I'd love to hear what you think. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. As I say, I'll start that on Friday. You can get your copy of Alan's book, Mining Irish American Lives, Western Communities from 1849 to 1920 at the link in the show notes below. I'd really recommend it. Finally, I hope you and yours have a great Christmas and I'll be chatting to you in January. Until then, Sloan. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now.